Morning, everybody. It's great to see you on this Baptism Sunday. Uh, it's already been a great morning. It's going to be a great day today. And uh, I want today to start a new series of teachings that are going to take us through into um, Easter, our Easter celebration on April 1st. And I'm hoping that this new series of teachings, what I'm hoping it's going to do is that it's going to reawaken for you a fresh understanding of who Jesus is and um, what he's doing. I'm hoping it's actually going to help prepare your heart and prepare our hearts as a church for our Easter celebration. So what I want to do is I want to look at the last 24 hours of Jesus' life before his crucifixion and resurrection. Of course, we believe that Jesus is still alive, that he, the death didn't have a hold on him. But we're going to look at the last 24 hours of his life here on earth before his crucifixion. And we're going to look at four very familiar scenes. We're going to look at the table, the garden, the courtyard, and then the cross. And then the following week will be Easter Sunday. And here's the thing, or at least here's what I'm hoping. Uh, for those of you who grew up in church, um, these four scenes are very familiar to you. You're gonna have recognized them from passages of scripture that you studied, from sermons that you've heard. It's all gonna be very familiar, but I'm hoping it's gonna be a fresh take on these four scenes, these last 24 hours of Jesus' life. But the good news is if you haven't grown up in church, if you aren't very familiar with the story, I'm guessing you also are somewhat familiar with these four scenes. You've heard of The Last Supper. You've heard of the Garden of Gethsemane. You've heard of the cross. You, there's been so many movies. It's been the center. The last 24 hours of Jesus' life have been the center of so many creative works of art in our culture for so long that you've heard about these too. And so what I'm hoping is that we see Jesus afresh. And a little bit of a confession to you. Um, I don't have a bunch of illustrations and stories and jokes and things like that this morning. I felt like what God led me to do was just to, to just dive deep into the stories themselves and just talk a little bit about what's going on around and underneath in context of these stories and to begin to just explore and learn what is it that God wants to say to us that's fresh. Can we see Jesus in a new way? Can we see him for what he was feeling, what he was dealing with, what decisions he was making, and how he was entering into the last 24 hours of his life? So that's the hope. And so we're going to begin today the table. We're going to start in Matthew chapter 26, Matthew's gospel. Verse 17 begins this way. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to prepare the Passover meal for you? So right away, first sentence into the story, there are these things that are referenced that we really don't have any context for. We don't really experience them in our world. And so the first thing I want you to understand is that Jesus wasn't a Christian. Both services, when I said that, a bunch of heads like immediately went up like this. Like, good morning, it's good to see you. Uh, welcome. Uh, yes, Jesus was not a Christian. Jesus was Jewish. His followers were the ones that came along and established what we know of as the religion of Christianity but Jesus was a Jewish man. And so the Jews would celebrate something called the feast or the festival of unleavened bread. And what it was, it was a week-long celebration of the story of the Exodus in your Bible. The story of how God ransomed and redeemed his people, the Israelites, from their slavery and bondage in Egypt and led them through the wilderness and eventually led them to the promised land. And it's this week-long celebration of that. Now, at the time of Jesus' life, what was happening was the temple was still intact in Jerusalem. And so during the week of the festival of unleavened bread, Jews from all over the place would pour into the city of Jerusalem. And they would just pack in. It, would just, it was a holy week and the place would just be filled to capacity. 
Now also, simultaneously, the Romans would also pour into the city of Jerusalem for the festival of unleavened bread. Roman soldiers were added that week. And so if you can get this picture in your head, you're a Jewish person, you're there for this week of the festival of unleavened bread. You're in Jerusalem. Jesus is Jewish. He's there in Jerusalem with his disciples. And you're celebrating your freedom. You're celebrating the fact that God redeemed you and ransomed you as his people. And yet the Romans are there and they're watching just to make sure you don't get out of control. And so you can picture, this was a time of great political unrest. Tensions went up, tensions were higher. And Jesus' disciples asked the question, where do you want us to prepare the, fa- the Passover meal? And so this, uh, the Passover meal is the second um, phrase that's used. And the Passover meal, the Jews called it a, a Seder. That's, that's the word that they would use to describe it. And it was a special meal that commemorated symbolically the, the story of the Exodus and the story of how God ransomed and redeemed his people uh, from Egypt. And so much like we gather at Thanksgiving time, they would gather with their families or extended families oftentimes. And it would be the mother and the father who would lead um, through the liturgy of the Passover meal. Now what's different, uh, unlike Thanksgiving for us, where the goal is basically just to eat and gorge yourself until you're full and then see if you can squeeze in one more piece of pumpkin pie, for them, uh, this, the goal of a Seder wasn't to get full. The goal was to in, interact with all the symbolic experience. So each part of a Seder meal is symbolic of the journey that the Israelites went on. It, and what it's intended to do is to connect you with your past and remind you of your past. And it's also intended to point toward the future and pour, point toward a coming Messiah and a coming kingdom where God will reign. That's the whole point of a Seder meal. And so the disciples are asking Jesus, where do you want us to celebrate this holy, sacred, deeply symbolic meal? And just for fun, um, if some of you are interested uh, in taking your faith a little bit deeper and and maybe understanding some of the Jewish roots behind these very familiar stories, we're actually going to have a Seder experience together here at Frontline on March 28th. That's a Wednesday night. It's the Wednesday night of the week of Easter. And so it's going to be right here in this room. We're going to set up round tables and everybody's welcome uh, it, all families are welcome. Uh, that's normally our now gen night, but we're actually going to invite the students just to be a part of it with us. And so um, there's going to be childcare birth through five years old, and there will be a sign up sheet. But for right now, if you want to just mark your calendars, if that's something you're interested in, we're actually going to go through a Seder experience. And again, the goal will not be to get full, okay? It's going to be enough food just to taste, but the goal will be to interact with the symbols of it and just bring a little bit deeper meaning to the story that we're so familiar with. And so that's what they're doing. They're experiencing a Seder. Let's keep going. As you go into the city, Jesus told them, you will see a certain man. Tell him, the teacher says, my time has come and I will eat the Passover meal with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus told them and prepared the Passover meal there. When it was evening, Jesus sat down at the table with the 12. While they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth, One of you will betray me. Greatly distressed, each one asked in turn, am I the one, Lord? He replied, one of you who has just eaten from this bowl with me will betray me. For the son of man must die as the scriptures declared long ago, but how terrible it will be for the one who betrays him. It would be far better for that man if he had never been born. Judas, the one who would betray him also asked, Rabbi, am I the one? And Jesus told him, you have said it. So if we could, let's just talk for a moment about Judas. Theories abound 
as to why Judas did it. Why did Judas betray Jesus? What we know about Judas is that as one of the 12, he was the treasurer of the 12 disciples. So he would have been handpicked by Jesus to serve in that role. And he would have had the trust of all the other disciples. And so people have speculated, well, maybe the reason Jesus betrayed, or maybe the reason Judas betrayed Jesus was because he was money hungry. He was always handling this money. He wanted more for himself. And so the gospels tell us what he did is that he sold Jesus out to the religious authorities for 30 pieces of silver. And so people thought, well, maybe he was just money hungry and that's what he just wanted a little bit more. It was greed that drove him. But the reality is at this time, 30 pieces of silver was hardly a big payoff. It wasn't like that was gonna set him up for life. In fact, it was probably a little more than a, maybe two or three weeks living expenses. Some have speculated maybe about the equivalent of like $500 today. Like you could live on it for a couple weeks. Maybe you could, you know, really ration it and make it last a little bit longer, but it wasn't enough to set you up for life. So I doubt that's the reason that Judas sold him out. It's really not that big of a, of a payoff. So other people said, well, maybe the reason Judas did it was because he was trying to force Jesus' hand. We, we've entire plays and, you know, pieces of poetry and things or songs have been written about that. Maybe he was trying to force Jesus' hand. In other words, Judas had no patience for a slow, nonviolent revolution. And so his goal was, if I can sell out Jesus, when they, when they come to arrest him, he'll have to defend himself. He'll have to fight back. He'll have no choice. And then the revolution will start. But the reality is, at this time in history, and especially this week in Jerusalem, violent revolutionaries abounded. They were everywhere. It wasn't hard. The, the different political groups, the Essenes, the Zealots, they were all there. And there was constantly another person claiming to be the Messiah rising up and rallying a group of people to cry out and to start to do a, a violent revolution. And then they would be smacked down by the Romans. The truth is, if that's what Judas was after, he could have left a million times before this moment and gone and joined one of those revolutions if he wanted to. Literally, he's been following Jesus around for three years and Jesus so clearly is not going to do that. All Jesus keeps talking about is love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Jesus isn't going to raise up and do this violent revolution. So I doubt that's the reason. So why did, Jesus, why did Judas do it? The, the gospels actually never give us a motive. They never tell us, here's why he did it. All the gospels say is that Satan entered him and he did it. So you wanna know why I think he did it? Are you interested? I mean, just for, I'm the one talking, right? So I guess I'll tell you, here's why I think Judas did it. I actually don't think it's very complicated at all. I think the reason Judas did it is because he and the other disciples could see where things were headed. I don't think it was very hard to figure out where this whole story was headed. Jesus repeatedly, even in the passage we just read, he keeps saying to his disciples, I'm gonna go to Jerusalem, I'm gonna be handed over, and then I'm gonna die. I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm gonna be handed over, and then I'm gonna die. Have I mentioned, we're headed to Jerusalem where I'm gonna be handed over and then I'm gonna die. He keeps saying it. And so now here they are in Jerusalem and Jesus every day is walking into the temple courts and he's confronting the religious authorities. He's teaching and he's pushing back on everything they're saying and the tensions are rising. I don't think it was hard for Judas to figure out where this was headed. Here's what I think. I, I think Judas believe that he didn't have what it took to stay with Jesus to the end. He didn't want to die on a cross. And so I think he sold out in order to get out. I think that's what he did. 
selling Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. It was his way of taking control of the situation he was in and exiting it on his own terms. He sold out in order to get out, in order to get control of the situation he was in. What's interesting is Jesus uses the bowl in the Seder meal to um, basically to identify that it's Jesus who's gonna be the one uh, who will betray him. In a Seder, there's a bowl that's passed around throughout the meal. It's a bowl of bitter herbs, a bowl of bitter sauce. If you've been to a Seder, it's literally a lot of times horseradish is used today. And what they would do is they, in that day, it was like vinegar and different herbs and stuff. And they would dip their hand into it and put it in their mouth. And it just, it tastes awful. Again, the point of a Seder is not to get full and stuff yourself. The, the point is to interact with the symbolism and connect yourself with your own story. And so many people believe it was this bull that, that they were passing around that Jesus is referring to. And the bull represented the bitterness of the slavery and the bondage that the Israelites experienced in Egypt. And so Jesus says, the person who betrayed me is the one who dipped their hand in the bowl with me of the, the bitter herbs, the bitter sauce. And this is what Jesus uses to identify Judas. Betrayal is an action. You can't really control who betrays you and who stays with you. Betrayal is an action, but bitterness is a decision. Bitterness is a choice that we make. And so Jesus, by using this bull, is, is making a statement about what Judas is returning back to and what he's heading back into. And so if we could just take a moment maybe and uh, pause here in the story and just shift the story back to ourselves as a way of just reflecting. What do you do with the Judas at your table? What do you do with the Judas who sits at your table? They've betrayed you. They've broken your trust. And yet they're still in proximity to you. Uh, maybe you see them every time you drop your kids off for joint custody. Um, maybe you get to see their wonderful life on Facebook every day when you go and look. Betrayal is an action. Bitterness, that's a decision. Bitterness is a choice. Uh, we're living in an age where people don't just wound us and exit our lives like they used to. They wound us, they exit our lives, but then we can still actually see them because of the online social media experiences we have. There's some research that was just put out recently by Barna um, in January about uh, the basically Generation Z, which is people born after 1999. They're the youngest generation among us. And um, it just talks about how they're more vulnerable to the perils of social media. One question said, looking at other people's posts often makes me feel bad about the lack of excitement in my own life. You can see from youngest to oldest uh, how we're affected. One, more, uh, one other question said this, I have experienced bullying on, social, bullying on social media. Again, youngest to oldest are most affected. And, and so what's happening is in our culture, especially the youngest of us in our culture are more and more experiencing what it means to be betrayed, what it means to be bullied, what it means to be taken advantage of, not just in physical space, but online. And we used to be able to kind of get away from people, but now we see their lives. We see what the person that betrayed us did. They're, the Judas is still very much at our table. Betrayal is an action. Bitterness is a decision. For me, uh, there have been people who have been a part of Frontline 
and who have left in a way that I felt betrayed. And I get to see what they're doing online. I get to see what they've said about it online. And for me, bitterness isn't so much seeing their life and seeing what they're doing as much as it is when the next person walks into the church, when the next new person walks in, do I give myself fully to that person or do I guard myself a little bit? Do I close up? Do I step back because I don't want to be betrayed again. I don't want to be taken advantage of again. I don't want to be fooled again the way I was before. Or am I able to open up and embrace innocence once again and just be open? Betrayal is an action. I can't control who betrays me, but bitterness, that's a decision. That's a, that's a choice. Jesus never changes his posture toward Judas at any point in the story. In John's gospel, Jesus gets up from the very meal at the table and he washes his disciples' feet. He never changes the posture he has toward Jesus or toward Judas. He continues to, to love him. He continues to extend grace to him. He never dips into the bowl of bitterness, so to speak. Let's keep going in the story. Verse 26, as they were eating, Jesus took some bread and blessed it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples saying, take this and eat it for this is my body. And he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them and said, Each of you drink from it, for this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. Mark my words, I will not drink wine again until the day I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Then they sang a hymn and they went out to the Mount of Olives. So what Jesus does here, and this is, again, if you're a follower of Christ and you've grown up in the church, it's very familiar. He takes the, the bread, which would have been unleavened bread, matzah bread, which we'll have with us on March 28th as part of the Seder experience. And he takes wine and he basically takes these two elements, these two symbolic elements in the Seder meal, and he turns them and he points them back to himself and he says, I'm the fulfillment of the new covenant. I, I, it's my, the bread is my body broken on the cross, the, the wine is my blood that is shed for you. And he points it back to himself and he says, it's my sacrifice and what I'm doing that's going to fulfill what, what it is that we've been celebrating all these years. We know this as the Eucharist, we know it as communion. This communion is what we call it here at Frontline, the Lord's table. And on March 28th, at the end of that Seder meal, we're going to take communion. We're gonna experience that together. Um, and we're gonna take it just the way Jesus did with his disciples. Now, what a lot of people don't know as they, as they read that is that as part of the Seder meal, there are actually four large cups of wine that you would pass around and everybody would take a, a large drink of it. And the four cups of wine represent the four different promises of God to his people in Exodus chapter six. If you read Exodus 6, there are four promises that God gives the Israelites that, of what he's going to do when he redeems them. And so there were these four cups of wine that were passed around that they, that they would drink and remembering these promises. By the way, this explains why a little bit later they're in the Garden of Gethsemane and the disciples keep falling asleep on Jesus. They've had four cups of wine. So Jesus is, is literally like, can't you just stay awake with me for one hour? And they're like, Jesus, you can hold your liquor a lot better than us. That gives you a, a, new, a new lens to see that through. Uh, and and they, many believe it was this last, the final cup of wine that was passed around at the Seder. Um, it's called the cup of Hallel. means praise. It was that cup that Jesus took and he chose to use and, and represent his blood that was poured out. It's this cup that Jesus sets down and he says, I will not drink it with you again until I drink it anew in the Father's kingdom. In other words, what I'm doing right now 
is gonna be the fulfillment that's gonna happen in the Father's kingdom. And that's when I'll drink the cup of Hallel with you again. It's a beautiful symbolic moment. And then from there, uh, it says they sang a hymn. The hymn was probably the Hallel. It was the final hymn of the Seder meal. And you can find it in the Bible. It's uh, Psalms 113 through 118. If you wanna jot that down, if you wanna read that on your own. The Hallel, this hymn that they would sing, it was a long hymn that was made up of Psalms 113 through 118. The hymn sings about resurrection. It sings about uh, the cup of salvation is referenced multiple times. And so when Jesus later on in the Garden of Gethsemane is praying to God and he says, Lord, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. He's, he's referring to the cup of salvation from the Hallel, from the hymn that they just sang. He's, he's responding to what they had just been doing in this moment. And so there's this meal where Jesus is, is gathering the disciples around him and he's leading them through this beautiful liturgy, this beautiful symbolic uh, meal that, that commemorates not only where they've been, but where they're going. And, he, and it's all pointing back to him. It's all pointing back to his death and his resurrection. And within 24 hours of this moment right here at the table, all of Jesus' disciples are going to betray him. It's not just Judas. None of them last through the night with him. They all scatter. Jesus is the only one who goes all the way to the cross. All the disciples are gonna scatter. They're all going to betray him. And Jesus, in this moment at the table, he knows it. He knows where this evening is headed. He knows what the disciples are gonna do. And what does he offer them? What Jesus offers them, and I would argue what he offers us today, today he offers rescue, not control. Jesus offers rescue, not control. Judas is looking for a way to get control of his situation, to manage his situation and control his own exit out of it. Jesus isn't offering to help the disciples get control of their lives, get control of their situation, get control of, of the ways in which they're sort of being carried along by this flood and the culture they're in. He offers them a rescue from themselves, from their own sin, from the world they live in. I've shared this uh, before. Uh, several years ago, there was a guy who came to me uh, and set up an appointment with me. He's from Frontline, he went to, attended. And so we sat down, the day came at the meeting, and I said, well, what, what can I do for you? And he said, well, my wife told me I had to sit down and meet with you or else she was gonna kick me out of the house and divorce me. No pressure or anything. And so I said, okay, uh, what, what is her main complaint? And he said, well, she believes that I have a drinking problem. So I said, okay, do you? Do you have a drinking problem? And we went on to begin discussing and, and he told me about how basically he had tried giving up drinking for her, but it had lasted less than a week. And he just couldn't, he just went back to it. And then he began to describe how his drinking had caused him to miss several days of work and it began, began to compound. And so eventually he'd lost his job and then he hadn't been able to get a new job or keep a new job because of the way that the drinking was interfering. And then he went on to tell me that there were entire days where he would start drinking and he would like black out or he would, there would literally be like an entire day where he couldn't remember what he'd done or where he was because he was just drinking so heavily. So by the, this point in the conversation, I think we had established, yes, you have a drinking problem. That is absolutely true. And even he was saying, okay, yeah, all right, I guess I have a drinking problem. And so I began to turn the conversation. I began to talk about the difference that Jesus can make when our lives are centered around him and what a recovery process uh, would look like centered around Jesus. And immediately he backs up. He goes, whoa, 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 hold on, hold on. 
I'll never forget this. He says to me, listen, here's the thing. I don't wanna give up drinking. I just wanna get control of my drinking. I don't wanna give up alcohol. I just wanna get in control of it. Can you help me with that? And I'll never forget just looking at this guy. And I think the response I gave was something along the lines of, sir, what your wife wants for you what your children want for you, even though they're too young to say it, and, and what your real, your true friends want for you, what I want for you as your pastor is not for you to get your drinking under control. It's for you to be rescued from alcohol because alcohol is making all the choices in your life. You aren't. Jesus doesn't offer to help us get control of our sin. He doesn't offer us to help us manage our sin a little bit better. He offers nothing short of a rescue. Redemption was you couldn't do it on your own. You can't fix it on yourself. You, the independent life apart from God doesn't exist. It's just death. Jesus says, my body, my blood, I offer you a rescue. I offer you this, this ransom, this rescue, a new life in me. See, the deep truth of, this, of the story of the table and the story of Judas' betrayal, if you can grasp it, the deeper truth underneath it is the fact that Judas and Peter and the other disciples were all basically the same person. They all betray Jesus that night. And the truth is, all of us have betrayed Jesus at some point in our lives uh, Romans talks about how all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None of us is righteous. None of us have lived up to it. And so Judas and Peter are basically the same person. They both betrayed Jesus. It's just Judas does it with 30 pieces of silver and Peter does it in the courtyard, uh, denying that he even knows Jesus before the rooster crows. But if you look at their two lives, Judas' life and Peter's life, they have such different endings. Judas ends, his story ends so tragically if you don't know the story, he tries to give the 30 pieces of silver back after Jesus' arrest because he feels so guilty and then he ends up going away and killing himself. He hangs himself but, but as just a tragic you know, end to his story. It's devastating. But Peter, after Peter's betrayal, Peter's story ends with life and hope and restoration and forgiveness. You can read about that part of the story in John chapter 21. Peter, actually, in the book of Acts, makes an appearance. He's one of the main uh, people with purpose in the story of the church as it goes forward. But they both are basically essentially the same person. They both deny Jesus, just like you, just like me. So what's the difference? Why did one of them end so tragically? Why, why did the other end in such a comeback story? It has to do with the fact that Peter stuck around long enough to let Jesus rescue him. You see, the great truth of the story, Judas' great sin is not that he betrayed Jesus. That wasn't his great sin. Judas' great sin was not that he didn't have what it took to stay with Jesus through the night. Judas' great sin is that he believed that Jesus did not have what it took to redeem him and rescue him. That was his great sin. And for so many of us, that's our great sin too. It's not that we don't have what it takes because I gotta tell you, none of us has what it takes. It's that we believe, we convince ourselves that there's no way Jesus could have what it takes. There's no way that he could be that good like we just sang about. That the salvation that he offers can actually rescue and redeem us. 
So baptism, what we're celebrating today, it raises all kinds of questions about what it means to live your life. Baptism, just like the Seder meal, is a symbol. It's symbolic. Just like Jesus died and was buried, and then three days later was raised to a new life, baptism came to, to represent in the church what, what happens, this transformation that happens when we move from death to life. So when we go down in the water, what we're symbolically saying is we're saying, I'm dying to my old life. I'm dying to the life of, I, I'm gonna have what it takes. I'm gonna prove myself. I'm gonna do it myself. I'm gonna fix myself. And when we come up out of the water, just like Jesus was raised to a new life, we're raising to a new life in him. Baptism raises these profound questions about how we live our lives on a daily basis. Questions like, you know, do I have what it takes to fix myself? Can people change themselves? Can people fix themselves? Can I pull myself up by my own bootstraps? Can I take my 30 pieces of silver and get control over my own life and, and control my own destiny and my own future? Or is the real truth underneath every single one of our, our lives that we need a rescue, we need a ransom? Jesus came as a savior because we needed to be saved. That's what he invited us into. He offered a rescue. He didn't offer the ability to help us better manage and better control our lives. So what happens is oftentimes with baptism, people will say, I'm not ready to get baptized. And you say, well, what, what is, why is that? And they say, well, I need to get some things fixed in my life first. I need to clean this up. I need to get control over this. I need to, and then once I get all that together, then I'll be ready to get baptized. And whenever I hear that, I say, you don't understand baptism. <laughs> baptism is, I'm dying the old life. I can't fix myself. I don't have what it takes. I need a rescue. I need a ransom. And when we come out of the waters of baptism, what, are, what we are declaring, we're going public with our faith and we're declaring, I have a new life in Christ. It's not me that's going to fix my life. It's not me that's going to clean it up. It's him. Only he can do it. Only he can do that. And every step, every day of my life from this point on is a day where I'm depending on God's strength, not my own. It's a day where it's every day is me declaring I don't have what it takes and Jesus does. All I really know, all I really have to offer any, any of you, any of us, all I've learned in 41 years of life is that I am a great sinner and Jesus really is a great savior. He really is that good. So that's what we're celebrating. That's what baptism invites us into. And uh, just like Judas, just like Peter, you can be one or the other. You can be the person that says, I'm gonna get control of my own destiny. I'm gonna take charge. Or you can be the person that says, I can't on my own. And I need God, I need you to make me new. I need you to give me a new life in you. I need you to redeem me. So here's what we're gonna do. Would you stand uh, with me? We're gonna enter into... Uh, time of baptism here. And these are times of celebration. These are times where we celebrate our, our weakness and our humility and the fact that we can't do it on our own. And we celebrate the greatness of God and his power to redeem. And so here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna sing a song. And um, if you're ready to get baptized, we'd love for you to come down and just join us right over here on this side of the stage. And uh, Brad and Chris are gonna be right over here too from our staff. And just begin to make your way over there even right now. 
And uh, we're gonna sing this song, Come to the Altar. And uh, here's the thing, if you, some of you, you plan to get baptized today, you let us know and you're here. Um, some of you, maybe you walked in the doors today and this wasn't the plan, you weren't gonna get baptized. And maybe you've been sitting there stewing it over in your head and going, well, you know, if I can just clean up this part of my life and I can get this together and I can manage this. And today you feel God tapping you on the shoulder saying, you can't on your own. You don't have what it takes. And that's the glorious truth. None of us has what it takes. And you're ready to go public for Jesus and just say, my life is hidden in the life of Christ. I've been made new. It's his life living through me. I've traded my life for his life. I've been rescued and ransomed and redeemed by the one, the only. If that's you, come forward and get baptized. Just join us. Um, here's what I'll tell you. We've got towels. We've got t-shirts. Um, we do. We get the t-shirts just be, to have, so somebody has uh, uh, some dry clothes that they can get baptized in. Um, so here's the thing. Don't get baptized for a free t-shirt. I don't think I have to say that, but just in case I have to say that, get baptized because you're ready to say, man, I'm ready to be made new. It's time. It's time. And we're going to celebrate with you. So just uh, join us. Let's sing this out together. Come to the altar and uh, you come if you're ready to get baptized and then we'll start.